we're going to move right into our message for today. I don't want to waste any time. I don't want to to push anything any further than it needs to. I think today's message is exactly what we're going to need to hear today. And um, I hope that we are all open and willing to receive, accept, and respond to whatever he has for us, man, myself included. I'm, I just want to give everything that I have to his will today and see what he does with it. But let me go ahead and get you caught up with where we're at in case you haven't um, been here the last few weeks. We are now in week six of our series called Knowing God, and it's such an appropriate topic um, for the presence that we feel today, um, just, just getting to know our creator God, just really getting to know him in a personal, intimate way. What we've said from the beginning of this series is that our objective is that we would enter into a real genuine relationship with him. Like that's, man, that's what our heart's desire is, that we would just have a, a real personal relationship with him. Not just that we would know facts about him or, or know information on him, but man, that we would be able to connect with him in such a real genuine way. And so we have been stepping our way through this journey. And uh, last week we took kind of an interesting turn in this series because the first four weeks um, we had talked a, a lot about some really high-level, um, high-reaching principles when it comes to God. We talked about how he is all-knowing. We talked about how he's all-powerful, how he's infinitely wise, like these high-reaching, amazing things about God that we can't even begin to comprehend. And what we learned through that is this is the best first step that we can take when getting to know God. Like the first thing that we really do need to realize is how big and amazing he is so that we can rightly step into a humble relationship with him. And so I hope that you guys have been able to start that process. But last week we took a turn and we started to talk about um, more of the moral attributes of our God. And what I mean when I say that is um, the deep, intimate things that begin to actually show us the very motives and intentions of our God. Like the, the things that really show us what he values and what he's ultimately about. These amazing things that draw us into him even closer. And so last week we used Romans chapter 11 verse 22 as kind of our guide to his moral attributes. And this is what the apostle Paul said to the church. Very simply, he said, I want you to consider the goodness and severity of God. He says to the church, listen, I want you to consider, I want you to think about, I want you to ponder the goodness and the severity of your God. And so last week we started that journey. We started digging into the goodness of God. And so we tried to start at a really foundational level. And, and here's what we said. Ultimately, this means that everything that God is and everything that God does is objectively good. And what I mean when I say that is you and I don't get to decide what is good or not. That's not a decision you and I get to make. God decides what is good, and therefore, he is the ultimate standard of good. That, that's what we mean when we say that God is good. It's so much more, it's so much deeper than we might initially 
think. But then last week we started to dig in even more to really get into some specific aspects of his goodness. So last week we talked about his mercy, that this is one of the first attributes that really reveals just how good he is. And we talked about what his mercy is, what that means for us, and then then how we rightly respond to that. And so today we're going to continue to dig into the goodness of God. We're going to continue to dig into the specifics around really what makes him the good God that we claim that he is, okay? Now, um, I will tell you from the very beginning today that today's topic is huge, okay? Today's topic is really, really big, and I know that that sets some really high expectations, but it's so true. This is such an important principle for us to understand, and one of the reasons that I can so confidently say that is because this concept that we're going to be going through today is what single-handedly changed my life. This is what changed my life in the spiritual realm, This is when I began to see God for who he truly is. This is when I actually started my relationship with him because I could truly get to know him for who he is. And, And so listen to me. You might think, well, if this is something that changed your life, it should be really easy for you to talk about. But the truth of the matter is I have felt such a heavy weight around this through my preparations this week. I I have felt such a heavy weight because I know, I know personally what this can do to your life. I know the impact that this can make if you rightly receive this. And that's so desperately what I want for all of us today, okay? So here's my request. This is simply what I'm asking of each and every one of us, whether you're in the building, whether you're watching online. I want us to just spend a few seconds praying and asking that God would open Open our hearts and minds to receive what he has for us today, okay? Which, which means he might have something different for every single one of us today. And if that's the case, so be it. But I want us to really open up to what he has because I truly, truly believe it can make a huge impact on your life. So can we do that? Can we just bow our heads everywhere across this building online? Can we just bow our heads and close our eyes? Listen, Listen, if this is important to you, if this means something to you, I need you to lean into this today. So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now as your children, and I ask that you would speak to us today in the exact way that we need to receive it. I mean exactly what we need to hear today according to your infinite wisdom. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do the work that only you can do of of, of penetrating our hearts and, 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 and pricking our hearts the way that it needs to be, Lord. I pray that your will would be done, that you would speak through me in whatever desire you have for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Lord, I pray that you would continue to move in this place, continue to make yourself known in such beautiful ways. I just want to come before your throne today. I just want to spend time with you today. I want to see you for who you truly are today. I pray that you would do that for each one of us. And I pray it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Well, I'm not going to tease this any longer. We're going to go ahead and get right into our topic today. So what we're going to be digging into, what we're going to be discussing over the next 25, 30 minutes is the grace of God. The grace of God. This is what I want to talk about. And this is 
one of the most beautiful aspects of God's goodness that we see in Scripture and that we see in our own lives. This is such an amazing, amazing concept for us to understand. And in fact, even just when I say the grace of God, there's just like a, a sweetness. There's just like a richness that I feel when I say those words. It means so much to me. And so I want to walk into this the best way possible. Now, I've heard God's grace um, defined many different ways. Um, growing up, I often heard God's grace defined as unmerited favor, um, favor that, that you and I don't deserve, right? I believe that that is true. I've heard it described as um, unearned approval, that he approves of us even though we haven't earned that. I think that's true. Um, I've also heard it defined as God's goodness to those who deserve only punishment. In other words, this is what you deserve. This is what you've earned for yourself, but this is what you're going to get because of his grace. I think all of those things are true, and I think they begin to uncover the beautiful aspect of his grace. But today we're going to take a little bit of a different approach in how we understand this because we're going to begin to unpack this concept by way of illustration. And what I mean when I say that is um, as we read through the Gospels and as we follow along the work and ministry of Christ, we see something very interesting about his approach as a teacher, and that is that he taught by way of something called parables. All right. Now, parables were simply stories or, or illustrations that he would come up with to try to bring truth to light. He wanted his people to see these concepts in the best way possible. And so he did this in such a beautiful, creative way. And so what I want to do is I want to go through one of these illustrations that he lays before the people and really try to understand exactly what he is driving at. But here's what's a little different about how I want to approach this, because I personally think that the real matter of this parable is actually happening in the context. I think the real beauty of this story is actually happening in the room as Jesus is speaking. It's happening in the context, and that's what I want to unpack before you today. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 15. This is where we're going to spend our entire time today. And right at the beginning of this chapter, uh, what's interesting is right away it gives us the context. Right away it shows us the room that we're in and who is there. And so this is what it says in verse one. It says, the tax collectors and sinners all came to listen to Jesus. So here is apparently the scene that we are stumbling upon. We see that Jesus is about to get up. He's about to speak. He's about to teach. And apparently there are some people with him, namely the tax collectors and the sinners. Okay. Now let's understand a little bit about who these people are, because this is very important to what we're about to learn today. And so let's start with the tax collectors. All right. Now you probably get a general sense of who they are just by their title, by, by their profession. That's what they did. And you may have heard before that back in this particular day and age, um, this was not a, a liked group of people, okay? It, it wasn't. And you may have heard before that one of the reasons for that is because they were cheats. They, they, they were thieves. They would go around and they would ask for more money than was necessary. They would pocket the difference. This was a very common custom in the day. And so you can imagine as a citizen, that's not very much appreciated, right? You wouldn't appreciate that, that tactic. And that's true. That is very true. But actually, the hatred goes much deeper than that. There's much more going on here that we need to 
understand. So let me just give you a real quick history lesson so that you can get the full picture. So if we go back to this time, during Jesus's time on earth, what we see is the Roman Empire in dominant form. I mean, they are dominating the world as we know it. They are ruling and governing from about England to India, okay? That entire massive stretch of land, they are ruling and governing. And one of the things that's very clear as we go back in history is that they ruled with a heavy hand, okay? They were very heavy-handed in their approach. They were very much about violence and, and abuse. And in fact, many of their tactics were just straight up inhumane. I mean, some, some really cruel stuff. In fact, if you go back and look at historical accounts, some of it will like literally turn your stomach. I mean, it's some pretty sick stuff. And the way that they wanted to rule was very close and very intimate. And, and, and really, when I say that, here's what I'm talking about. If something were to happen today, in our country, and the government had to intervene, it wouldn't take very long for that to happen. In other words, whether it's local authorities or it's military, it wouldn't take maybe but a few hours for them to be able to intervene in that situation because we got cars, we got helicopters, we got fighter jets, right? All of those at our disposal. But back in this time, which is about 30 AD, it's obviously very different. And so if something were to rise up in that area, it could take the government weeks, months, maybe even years to intervene in that situation. And so in order for the Roman Empire to really rule like they wanted to, what they had to have was a massive, massive army. I mean, a massive army. They wanted boots on the ground as far widespread as they could get it. They wanted people on the job at all times. Now, what comes with a massive army is a massive bank account, okay? You have to pay for all of these things, right? I mean, we're talking about training and equipment and food for all of these people. This is very expensive. And so how does a government foot that bill? By way of taxes, okay? So there's a lot, a lot of taxes that are going into this. So listen, this is what's really going on during this day and age. You have these guys, these tax collectors, who, who are relentlessly chasing people down. They're, they're hounding people for money that is then going to a government that is intentionally and violently abusing their family and their friends. They are literally paying out of pocket so that their very own government can oppress and abuse them. Now, there's really no modern day equivalence to that. We can't really equate that to anything in our world today. But if you could just imagine for a second, if this were true, let me just ask you, how would you view those guys? How would you view those people constantly knocking on your door every night or, or following you around to, to collect so that then the government can abuse, can oppress your children and your wife? How would you look at those guys? How would you treat those individuals? So when I say that these people were hated, I mean they were despised. Nobody wanted to be anywhere near these guys. And these are the people that are beginning to gather around Jesus as he's about to teach. Now, we read that right alongside the tax collectors were the sinners. Now, you might be initially thinking to yourself, well, Scripture says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? And so in this way, maybe this represents all of us, which, which might be true. But really in the Greek, when it says sinners here, it's, it's really talking about a special de designation of people. Like it's talking about the worst of the worst, like the people that if you were to walk by, you'd get a nice wide berth to make sure you're, you're away from them, right? That's really who this is representing. And so this is the group, the tax collectors and the sinners, the worst of the worst are now gathering together before Jesus to hear what he has to say. 
And if you can just picture with me for a second, these people kind of meeting on this side of the room, getting ready to hear what Jesus has to say. Because on this side of the room, there's a different group of people. This is what we read in the very next verse. Verse two says, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to complain, look, this man welcomes sinners and he even eats with them. So, so now we've got a different audience in the room. We've got the Pharisees and the teachers of the law or the scribes. And, and by way of what they've already said, you can probably get a general understanding of who these people were. But just as a quick refresher, when we talk about the Pharisees, we are talking about the religious elite of the day. And I mean the elite of the elite, the best of the best, okay? Now, in retrospect, we look back at those guys and we kind of look down on them for their pride and their self-righteousness. But if we're really being honest about it, they were better than us, okay? They, they knew more about the Bible than you and I. They fasted more than you and I. They prayed more than you and I. Like, they ate, they drank, they lived spiritual things. That was their identity, and they were proud of that. So what's really interesting here is as we peek into this room that Jesus is about to get up and speak to, we've got totally different sides of the spectrum represented. We've got the worst of the worst over here, the best of the best over here. And as you can imagine, they're kind of looking across the room with disdain at one another. Really interesting scene that we walk into. And this is when Jesus gets up and he begins to tell this story. Let's go to Luke chapter 15. We're going to start in verse 11. This is what Jesus says. He says, Now a man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Give me my share of the property. So the father divided the property between his two sons. Then the younger son gathered up all that was his and traveled far away to another country. And there he wasted his money in foolish living. Now let's hit the pause button real quick because Jesus is beginning to tell this story. But at this point, the Pharisees on this side of the room are starting to get a little excited. I mean, Jesus is talking about a guy who's, who's wasting money and who's got foolish living. So they're kind of peeking over at the tax collectors and the sinners kind of smiling like, all right, he's about to get them, right? He's going after some sinners today. They're starting to get a little, little jacked up about this, okay? So Jesus continues in verse 14. He says, now after he had spent everything, a time came when there was no food anywhere in the country and the son was poor and hungry. So he got a job with one of the citizens there who, who sent the son into the fields to feed pigs. And the son was so hungry that he wanted to eat the pods that the pigs were eating, and yet no one gave him anything. Now let's stop here for a second, and let's just do a quick recap of the story that Jesus is unfolding before us, okay? So, so this is what he's saying. There's a father who's got two sons, and the younger son immediately comes to his father, and he says, I want my share of my inheritance right now. I, I, I want it right now. Now, you have to understand, this is an extremely disrespectful, disgraceful thing to do. Essentially, what this son has just said is, Dad, I wish you would just die so that I can have your stuff. I, I wish you would just go die so that I can have your wealth and your possessions and your, your property. Extremely disgraceful. And yet, what does the father do? Here you go. Go ahead, go ahead, take your inheritance and do what you want. And immediately, this son takes it and he wastes it on a bunch of worthless things. I mean, just totally throws everything away that his father had worked for. I mean, unbelievably disrespectful. But now he has fallen so far that he's in a pig's pen and he just, he's ready to eat the pig's food. I mean, if that's what it takes, I'm gonna have to eat the pig's food so that I can stay alive. He has fallen so far. 
And so again, on this side of the room, the Pharisees are like foaming at the mouth at this point. They're like, come on, let's get him. We know where you're going, right? And yet on this side of the room, the tax collectors and the sinners, they're starting to lean in a little bit. Wait wait a second, I can kind of connect with this. I'm kind of putting some things together and they're beginning to lean on every word that Jesus is now saying. So he continues in verse 17. Now, when the son realized what he was doing, he thought, all of my father's servants have plenty of food and I'm here almost dying with hunger. This is what I'm gonna do. I will leave and I'll return to my father and I'll say to him, father, I've sinned against God and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, but let me just be one of your servants. Like if I could just, if I could just do that, if I could just be one of your servants, I would be happy. At least I'll have food. At least I'll have shelter, right? This is what I need. So I'm gonna make my way back to the father. But listen, let's not forget everything that this kid has done. Like, let's not let him off the hook so quickly, right? I mean, he disrespects his father. He abandons his family. He throws everything away. And now he's just going to come back home. Let's not let him off the hook so easily. And so at this point, the tax collectors and the sinners, they are like waiting with bated breath. What's about to happen in this story? What's the father going to do? What does retribution look like? That's what they're wondering. We need to know what we're getting ourselves into. And this is what Jesus continues to say. He says, so the son left and he went to his father. All of this, it's about to culminate. We're about to see what is going to happen. And this is what Jesus says. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt sorry for his son. So the father ran to him and he hugged him and he kissed him. The son said, just as he had rehearsed, Father, I've sinned against God and against you. I know I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but watch the father's response. He said to his servants, hurry, bring the best clothes and put them on him. Put a ring on his finger, put sandals on his feet, get our fat calf and kill it so that we can have a feast and celebrate. For my son was dead and now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. They began to celebrate. So Jesus sets up this story and in the room, they all know where this is going, right? I mean, they all know the result of this. The son is gonna come home and the father is gonna be ticked, right? He's gonna come out. He's gonna put a finger in their chest. He's gonna get them off the premises. Get out of here. You're not welcome here. That's what's gonna happen, right? And in this amazing plot twist, Jesus says, no, 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 no. The father's gonna come out and he's gonna give you a bear hug and he's gonna bring you back home to celebrate. At this point, the tax collectors and the sinners have tears streaming down their faces. People who can all too easily relate to the brokenness and the shame and the despair. And yet the message that Jesus is laying before them is to come back home. Come back to the Father. He's watching. He's, he's waiting. Would you just come back home? Like, I know you've messed things up. I know you think you've gone too far. But come back where you belong. Come back home to your Father. It's an amazing plot twist this amazing pathway of grace that he's laying before them. And so now, as this part of the room is absolutely falling apart, I mean, they are just ugly crying because of this amazing message that Jesus has given them. We look to this side of the room, and the Pharisees are mad. I mean, they are seething. Are you kidding me? This is what we're doing? We're, we're going to give these people hope? We're going to give these people a way out of their stupid mistakes and all the terrible things they've done? Is that what we're doing, Jesus? I mean, come on, look over here. Look at me. Look at my resume. I pray. I fast. I, I read scripture all the time. And you're going to show them favor? What is going on? They are mad. And this is when Jesus now turns his attention to them. And he continues his story in verse 25. 
he says, now the older son was in the field. And as he came closer to the house, he heard the sound of music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and asked what all of this meant. So the servant said, man, your brother has come back and your father killed the fat calf because your brother came home safely. Come on, let's celebrate. Let's go. Let's, let's get him. But this is what we read in verse 28. But the older son was angry. He would not go in to the feast. Watch what happens. So his father went out and he begged him to come in. But the older son said to him, I've served you like a slave for many years. I've always obeyed your commands. I, I read scripture, I fast, I pray, but you never gave me even a young goat to have a feast with my friends. But your other son who, who wasted all your money on prostitutes comes home and you killed a fat calf for him? I mean, this is ridiculous. Watch what the father says. Son, listen, you are always with me. And all that I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be happy because your brother was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he is found. Like, listen, we got to celebrate. This is your brother we're talking about. Go give him a hug for goodness sake. Come on, he's, he's back home. We got to celebrate. See, what's going on in the room is as the tax collectors and the sinners are turning their faces to God for the very first time and, and seeing that there's hope, that there's freedom available to them, Jesus is now turning to the Pharisees and he's saying, come on, let's celebrate. Don't you see what's happening over here? I mean, lost to found, death to, uh, come on, let's celebrate. And they're not seeing it. They're, they're just not getting it. Now, here's the amazing thing about this, this story to me. I always remember, I always remember that the father came out to the younger son. I, I see that so vividly, so clear. I, I can see him running off the porch, sprinting to his boy, just giving him a bear hug and holding him, going back and celebrate. I mean, I can see that so vividly, but I so often overlook, he does the same to the older brother. He, he, comes, he comes running out to him as well. Now, wait a second. This father has been nothing but loving to his boys. He's been nothing but generous to these guys. When they ask for their inheritance earlier, he freely gives it up. The younger son abandons the family. He waits on the porch for him to come back home. Now he's going out back to try to bring the, the older brother back. Why, why is the father doing all the work? He's the only good one among them. He's the only loving uh, amongst the bunch. Why is he doing this? Because of grace. Because of unmerited, unearned favor for his kids. See, this is what Jesus is trying to get both groups in the room to understand. You serve a father who is full of grace. Like It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the mistakes that you've made. It doesn't matter what your perspective is. He's got open arms ready for you to come back home. This is a God of grace. This is who we serve. Now, what's interesting to me about this is at times as I'm reading through scripture, if I'm just being transparent with you guys, I can... I can get kind of cynical. I can, I can kind of start to question some things. And, and, and so one of the things sometimes I think with parables is that's not even a real story, right? I mean, it's admittedly, it's made up by Jesus, right? So it's, it's not like it's a, a, a nonfiction story. He's making this up to try to get a point across. So really, should we like lean into this the way that we're saying we should lean into this? I mean, is that really that important? And so if you think like me sometimes, if you think like that, let me prove to you that this is not just a parable. Let me prove to you that this is not just some random story that Jesus made up, okay? You ever heard of David, King, King David in the Old Testament, the one that slays Goliath, the one who's infamous for, for worship and for charisma? I mean, this amazing guy, right? You know what else he did? He, he stole another man's wife and he had the husband killed. 
He stole another man's wife and had the husband killed so that he could keep her for himself. That's King David. That's who he was. He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He belonged right next to that group of sinners that day in Luke chapter 15. And yet, you know what God would go on to call him? A man after my own heart. A man after God's own heart. He delighted in an adulterous murderer. How does that make any sense? How could that be true? Because of grace. Because of unmerited favor for his kid. You ever heard of Paul, the Apostle Paul? We talk about him all the time. He wrote much of the New Testament, right? This this amazing man, you know what he did? He started his life by persecuting Christians. In fact, scripture actually shows us that he stood by as Christians were stoned and killed before his very eyes. In fact, he likely participated in that at times. That's who Paul is. He's he's a self-righteous jerk, That's who he is. He would have have belonged right in that group of Pharisees that day in Luke chapter 15. And yet he goes on to be a figurehead of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How could that be true? Because of grace. Because of grace. See, it's not just a parable. This is a message of saving grace that applies to every single one of us. That no matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, your father is waiting to just lavish you with his loving grace. This is the God that we serve. Like, are you getting this? This is who he is. I told you earlier that this is a concept that changed my life. And and that sounds hyperbolic, but I promise you that's the truth. 100% this concept changed my life. I grew up going to church all the time, two, three, four times a week. We were always at the church. And so I heard lesson after lesson and teaching after teaching. And yet I grew up with such a distorted view of God. I mean, I grew up with such a terrible perspective of him, one that that honestly pushed me away from God rather than brought me into him. Because here's how I grew up. I grew up thinking that every one of my failures and every one of my mistakes was just constantly being magnified. Like, like I just, I always felt so guilty. I always felt like I was was so wrong. I, I never felt free of anything. That's how I grew up. For 22 years, that was my perspective of God. And at 22, we went to a local church and we were trying to actually do some recon because we were about to start the bridge. And this pastor got up and he gave a message on grace. And I'm telling you right now, it broke me. It absolutely tore me apart. I've never cried more in my life because for the first time, I began to see my father for who he truly is. The loving, grace-filled father that he is. And so listen to me. It doesn't matter what your story is. It doesn't matter what you've done or how many times you've done it. It doesn't matter how many people you've hurt. It doesn't. In fact, watch what God tells Paul. Paul, the self-righteous jerk. Paul, the one who calls himself the chief of all sinners. Watch what God tells him. He says, Paul, listen, my grace is sufficient for you. My my grace is enough. It's going to cover everything. You you can't go too far. My grace is too much. So I need you to be honest. I need us to be transparent because here's the truth of the matter. You are a sinner. You are lost. You are broken and yet God still loves you you have turned your back on him you have continued to ignore him 
you have spoken ill of him, and yet he's waiting with open arms for you to come back home. See, listen to me. There's nothing that you have ever done nor could ever do that would surprise God. In fact, every bit of it coursed through the mind of Jesus as he died for it on the cross. So stop holding on to it. Stop beating yourself up about it. Here's what you need to do. Just lay it at the feet of Jesus. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved. For by grace, by his goodness, by his unmerited favor to you. In other words, it's not your goodness that saves you. It's not your righteousness that saves you. You could never do anything to earn that. It's his gift of grace. Would you come back home? Would you come back to your father? Can you just close your eyes right now? Lord, I pray that you would speak to your people right now. Could stand up here for hour upon hour, but in five seconds you can do what I could never do. I pray that you would speak, I pray that you would move in that way right now. As hearts are opening, as minds are beginning to see you for who you truly are, I pray, God, I pray that you would wrap your loving arms around us. I pray that you would pull us in, that we would go back home and celebrate together because we're back home right where we belong.